0: Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Percussionist Alan Otte came to the University of Cincinnati in 1977 with the Black Earth Percussion Group, which he co-founded in 1972. In 1979, he founded the Percussion Group Cincinnati. For the last 35 years, the group has maintained an international touring schedule of concerts, concerto appearances, children's programs, and master classes. They have created a large body of new and experimental music, which included special relationships with composers John Cage, Herbert Brun, and Chu Song. As a soloist and creative collaborator, Alan has concertized, recorded, and taught throughout North America, Europe, and Asia. You can hear his recordings on the Mode and Ars Moderno record labels. Al, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks.
0: So, as I mentioned in the introduction, you got to work closely with some very influential and pivotal composers of the 20th century, and... uh, Perhaps most notably was your work with John Cage, and so I'd be interested to hear a little bit about that.
1: He was at the end, near the end of his career in his last decade, and I was very young, more near the beginning. It was after the Black Earth years. We met him once in the Black Earth years. Um, We made this recording, this record, the first Black Earth record. Uh, it was a record, an LP. And Amores was on that, uh, that record. I remember we once went then to a concert in Chicago, very proud of our, of our record with his piece on it. And indeed, it was the first time the piece had been recorded since he had done it. Yeah, yeah, There was one other recording of it back in the in early 60s when he played it. Um, so we brought him a copy of the record, and he was mm, sort of charming after his concert. And he just smiled and said, Oh, I don't use records. <laughs> 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 so we couldn't even get him to take a copy of it. Um, but then later, uh, I must have been uh i don't know how many years later 6 years later something like that we uh we were in cincinnati the it was by then with my uh new colleagues in cincinnati and we had an invitation to a uh music festival in germany and we were going to be there for a few days and the festival said, and by the way, the invited composer is John Cage, so um, we want you to play new, young American composers, but you might also play something of Cage, if you like, because he'll he'll be here for that whole time. And the truth of the matter is we hadn't played, up until that time, um, a great deal of Cage. Amores had, had always and has remained all of these decades in the repertoire but um, actually the Black Earth group also played um, this now very famous piece Third Construction but um, that's a story in itself actually that uh, Third Construction maybe being I don't know is that the most famous um, percussion chamber piece from from the opening era of our, our compositional history. But Cage chose not to have it published uh, uh, when he had all of his uh, initial pieces going to Peter's. For some reason that wasn't in the batch and it didn't come until oh, almost 15 years later. So when it was first published uh, the Black Earth Group got it and we, we were the first people even to, to play it in, in Europe. Um, it's funny to think now that that very famous piece got its European premiere, only in the late, oh, mid-70s. Anyway, we went to this music festival in in Germany and uh, um, prepared a number of other pieces of his. And at that time, he then he wrote to me and said, and oh, by the way, I I have a new piece which you might be interested in, maybe you want to play that too. Um, So that's where the relationship started, and what was particularly nice about it was to to be for four days, three or four days with him staying in the same very small little hotel, a little pension. So he was there every morning at be- breakfast. We could go to um, sit with him at concerts. And uh, I, I did that. I, I I got to know him because he was so, he was really quite quite easy to to get to know in that way. I think he was happy also in those years to meet people who didn't just want his autograph or ask stupid questions. Often people would come up to him and and ask, uh, I suppose, nice enough questions, and he would ask if, well, have you read any of my books? And then he would laugh and smile and say, well, actually, maybe you want to look at that book and you could see that I've talked about that. So anyway, he was he was easy to be with and what impressed me what 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 was impressed upon me the most in those experiences was in fact to sit with him at concerts of uh, other new music and he would make he would make such uh, such interesting to me comments about it some little comment and he didn't need to impress me what did what did he care what i thought about these things so he just said what he thought you know and he would say things you know big piano piece and he would lean over and quietly say oh i think chopin did it better <laughs> and then he would he would laugh with that you know that picture you always see of him with a big open mouth sure, quiet sure. laughter meaning that i i got to know that he really knew what he was talking about he knew exactly what he was talking about and um similarly performances of his own music um he would have little comments and it was it was quite in that way it was felt very special to to know him
0: well uh, you and i had talked about it uh, maybe even a year ago now but there was a, a book that came out recently called where the heart beats and yeah. it was all about john cage and the his connection or uh sort of influence of zen buddhism and how that played out in his music and in his, basically in his life, in his mm-hmm. creative life, but also in his, just in his day-to-day life, which the two seemed to always be merging closer and closer together as he went through his career. But there was, um, a part of that book where it was sort of an early on and they were describing Los Angeles in the 1930s and Cage organizing these, uh, you know, ch- uh, what were they sort of like, um ladies home uh-huh. in, yes, information yes, sort of exactly. he would give lectures yes, to exactly. housewives on mm-hmm. contemporary art and music and then yeah. he mm-hmm. would go to these sort of soirees where kandinsky was there and all of these sort of famous artists anyway uh, kind of as an aside but I, I started to read that book now i'm just about uh, just starting uh, on it and uh-huh. uh, i was very taken by the description of los angeles in the 1930s and His, you know, sort of the idea that he would become a composer in those, you know, in that milieu where where all this stuff was happening and meeting Cowell for the first time and and studying with Schoenberg. And it's just a fascinating Mm -hmm. sort of point in history that he sort of found himself in that confluence, just Mm -hmm. the right time, just the right place
1: of the uh, many books both his own and many that have come out about him and sp- especially like that one which came out in the centennial year that's the w- that's the one that i feel strongest about it's so interesting that it's not written by a musician it's written by someone who's not only a good writer but knows something about uh, her subject of Zen Buddhism and to really delve into that in a, in a not the least bit sensationalist, celebrity-driven kind of way. Uh, I think it's a, a, a tremendously important, insightful book into this guy and what it, what, what it was like um, in the 30s in Los Angeles, in the 50s in mm. New York City. Oh, yeah. yeah an important book, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do we do uh, with Cage's music now? I mean, we're, we're at this point in history where the connections with Cage, um, the, the generation of people that would have worked with him and know him are, are starting to thin a bit.
1: Yeah. Um.
0: And so, you know, the firsthand accounts are, are important, I think. But there are many people my age and younger who have only known of Cage through his books only known him through the recordings that we can find of interviews and when he's spoken publicly or that that had been recorded and films made this kind of thing but for those of you that were able to know him personally um, I I imagine that playing his music is a, a much different experience and I just sort of curious to to know what you think about his legacy and what we're doing with his music now and where it's where it's where it's all going.
1: I think it's a little bit unfortunate that he's very well known for a few pieces and these pieces are are played by maybe a small number of people in the larger scope, but many people in the the, um, field of new music or percussion. But the pieces that he continued to write throughout his life that he kept moving on. It was one one of the most striking things about him that um, once he had done something and, and in a sense proved to himself that he knew how to solve that problem, that he could do that successfully, um, he didn't in that sense establish a, a style that there, there are periods where there are a number of pieces that are quite similar variations of, a, of an idea, and um, the idea, though, that he would then move on. So even when we played his things, he would always say um, that he wasn't particularly interested in hearing these famous pieces, percussion pieces from the 40s, even the f- famous prepared piano pieces um he was he said the piece i think my best piece is the piece i'm writing right now the piece i'm most interested in is is whatever i'm working on right now and he he encouraged always that and, and so in in that sense i'm i'm a little bit sorry that his legacy now Sits so heavily upon either a few sensationalist kinds of things, like for everybody wanted to play 433 in in the centennial year, and then there are some prepared piano pieces and uh, and the percussion pieces from the 40s. And from late in his life, there are many pieces which are very, very beautiful, very you know quite unusual and very, very beautiful. Even the prepared piano pieces, it's an interesting. Mm, chunk of musical history because I don't know who's going to play those. Most pianists don't play them. One could forgive them. They, they have a lot of repertoire by a lot of really good composers um, and to go through the trouble to know how to do that well. Um, so there are very few pianists who take them seriously and there are a few of us percussionists who have enough piano skills to play them but but even these things are are they're so beautiful to hear them live to actually know what's happening when you're in the presence of that music it's it's of course quite different to just hear them on your computer yeah. I, I, I i would i would wish that if one if people actually knew more more of his writings and the influences upon him and the connections he made uh could come to understand that he was act he, he was a brilliant a, a brilliant man and um and that he was very serious about his his um his his sonic art and that this continued to his dying day and there are there are many many beautiful pieces to learn to learn from to experience yeah. from mm.
0: something that was uh, there's another great book on his music that musicians who were interested to learn about sort of the way that his music was constructed is by Pritchett uh yes mm-hmm. the music it's i think yeah. it's just called the music of John Cage right, exactly. and i remember mm-hmm. in of course when i was a student and studying with you and and studying at uh University of North Texas where i kind of first came up upon mm-hmm. Uh, and really, you know, started digesting and reading these books. Uh, Christopher Dean showed me, uh, you know, some of these things. And anyway, that that book figured heavily into my sort of understanding that Cage wasn't just a philosopher, <laughs> you know, because a lot of the music history textbooks, yeah. you know, um, sort of describe Cage. Well, he was really more of a philosopher than a composer. Pritchett says... No. (laughs) Actually, if you look at this person, I mean, this is a person who wrote music uh, for—was commissioned by major symphony orchestras, by opera companies in Europe, and Mm -hmm. has, uh, you know, I I don't remember the exact number, but many, many, many pieces uh, composed over these years. This is not uh, someone who's writing philosophy books. I mean, the books are sort of part and parcel of his approach to music making, but certainly I would— consider him to be a composer first and foremost yeah. and then and then he also i i so i've learned is is just as uh regarded in the visual art world yeah. mm-hmm. and in the literary world for his books uh so this was yeah a, a man of uh, immense immense creativity and 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 talent Hi, everyone. Sorry to interrupt the show. I just wanted to drop in and ask that uh, if you are listening on iTunes, please do me a favor. Go back and leave a rating or a review. It helps people find and follow the show. Thanks. So this is interesting. Uh, All of this information about Cage, I don't want to get too bogged down with with all of that, and we could certainly come back and talk about some of the other composers that you've sort of cultivated relationships with. And I think maybe that could be an interesting topic just on its own, forging relationships with composers. And it seems to me that over the years, something that I've observed about you is that you you take very seriously those relationships, the the creative relationship between performer and composer and and I suppose that's especially important for percussionists to consider because of our sort of the idiosyncrasies of our instrument and our instrument collections are all different and so it's yeah. sort of important when a composer is writing a piece for you to um, to be as involved as one can be with, to uh, with regards to the creation of, of that but but my observation of your work has been that the the personal relationship is also important and you know, I don't know if you want to talk about, mm-hmm. talk about that sort of just in a general idea, or...
1: I think from the very beginning, in the Black Earth days, and, and, and immediately carried over to Cincinnati, we were more interested, actually, in the music of our, our friends, our classmates. In fact, that very first album where we recorded Amores Uh, I, I I was actually against the idea of putting Amores on there. I said why should we give 10 minutes of this LP over to one of the most famous composers of contemporary music when we could be giving it to people, friends of ours who we think are great composers and don't have any voice. I was outvoted, and I'm glad that I was outvoted on that. I'm glad we put that on on that first album, um, but the idea was always to um, to to find not only to find people um, in our travels. We would meet people, and and often we'd hear a piece. A computer piece, a string quartet, something by a, a composer, a young person somewhere else, and um, based on that, and getting to know the person a little bit, then would would ask, well, could you write something for percussion? And as you, as you mention, um, I think our unique situation, most composers are. Uh, pride themselves in what they know about the piano or about their own computer programs or about writing for string quartet and many of them are quite intimidated and I would say rightly so by the whole world of percussion so we're very much invited from the very beginning to be deeply involved with with every step of that and somehow from the very beginning I also I was comfortable I suppose because I knew that my job was to know my instruments and my techniques and and all of their potential exhaustively um, to, to, to be well versed in the history of its literature what was successful what at least, in my opinion, was not so successful. I knew all of those things, and the com- the composer's idea, the uh, responsibility was to know his or her craft uh, of of making structures, um, and and whether or not these, you know, whatever these these pieces were addressing, what issues they were addressing musically or beyond just the musical concerns which meant that that it was important to challenge these people to to make suggestions from the very beginning and um, There's a whole there are many pieces which we would the composer would send back in in those days Mostly uh, we always said, you know, don't send us the final inked copy Please keep us in the loop Mm -hmm. send us pencil sketches whatever you've got and and Often the group would even, um, you know, make recordings or or I would just get back to them and say, I wonder if what you were thinking about here, wouldn't this work better? How about this? And, you know, most composers were very happy with that kind of um, um, engagement, didn't feel threatened uh, in that way. But yes, you're right. Uh, mm, There were also many personal friends that started from my undergraduate days and there are people uh, whose music we've played sort of continuously for these 40 years. Um, We have always been interested also in student composers. All of our decades in Cincinnati we've always had in the repertoire pieces by students. Um, And it's the same thing, the same kind of situation where uh, we would Notice somebody in the hallways who was an interesting person, somebody who might come to us and ask questions, and then we'd pay attention to their recitals or other places where there might be a piece by that young guy or woman, and um, and then ask them, well, how about coming to our studio and let's invite them, you know, to hang out over a period of longer periods of time where they could keep coming to the studio and look at things. So we felt that that was a relief. Um, fruitful way to develop a lot of the repertoire we did and I must say that we didn't we never made a big uh, push to have these things published to try to to um, to make any kind of statement about in what sense this was should be important standard repertoire that other people should know it was always a, a personal relationship amongst the three of us in the group, what we enjoyed doing together, and how we enjoyed uh, the relationships with the people whose music we were playing. And, and um, a lot of the stuff in our on our shelves and our folders is still the Xerox copies, the much deteriorating Xerox copies that we've been playing for years and years. Maybe that's been, as I look back, I don't know. Is is that a failing, in the sense that we we didn't devote enough energy to somehow publicizing some of the pieces that we thought were were really really wonderful and interesting pieces, or or maybe there's still time. Maybe that's still still coming. Hmm. Well,
0: uh, let's let's go back uh, and talk a little bit about. The formation of the Black Earth Percussion Group—you mentioned mm-hmm. several times now, just in this segment—about at the beginning. And so, take us back to that to that time and that sort of confluence of uh, events, and and the sort of what was in the air, what was happening to uh, to make this group come together, and what was it, what was happening back then.
1: I was jealous, very very much envious of the string players. In during my undergraduate years at Oberlin, um, who got to play chamber music. They played string quartets. And in those years, the teacher at Oberlin was um, Richard Wiener, was coming down from the Cleveland Orchestra. Uh, we principally were learning orchestral repertoire and, and very, very, very highly refined technique in that direction and he was there one day a week. So I had a precious 59 minutes with him once a week. So the rest of the time um, if 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 a student, in our situation, wanted to be in contact with, with an adult. Uh, we, you know, I sought out the composers on the faculty, young theory teachers, and they were the ones who introduced me to Stockhausen and Cage and Feldman and, and all fascinating things, um, which I would begin to bring some of this stuff to my lessons, and Wiener didn't know anything really about it, but it was just wonderful because he would um, just put his critical eye and ear on that and, and judge it the same way he would judge uh, playing a triangle part in a Brahms symphony. And it's sort of funny to, to think back to, to that, that whole process of, of, of learning the things in that way. But what it, what it instilled in me was a desire to bring that same kind of technique, that, that highest refinement of orchestral playing to contemporary percussion. There were pioneers in in percussion uh, in the 60s, uh, people to whom we're indebted, but they were not, for the most part, they're not people who were, I would say, they simply weren't people who were coming out of the orchestral tradition. <clears throat> they were um, they were just jumping in there and uh, and and getting it done, and that was with tremendous energy and flamboyance, and that was great. But but it was so clear that it would be just just wonderful to to take this, you know, my my orchestral snare drum technique and apply it to playing Cage. If you can imagine, there was a time when we had to talk about that that that. Um, to see on the one hand that string quartets were a, a, a beautifully intense way of of working in, a, a, in in this historical chamber music situation. On another hand, there was the highly refined art of orchestral percussion playing. Uh, on another hand, there were, you know, this was the day of the great John Coltrane court. You know, there was an American music or even whatever, Bob Dylan, great rock groups, but especially great jazz groups, which were, again, people who played together all the time, and uh, an intense creative sort of music. And um, it seemed sort of obvious that this desire to want to do this, I I think um, a number of us mm, were almost resented that our choice had to be either to go into an orchestra or to uh, what become a music, a band director or something like this, or to play pop popular music. To, um, so that's how the, the whole notion of forming such a group was was started. And um, uh, my my classmate Gary Kavistad had. Some other summertime experiences at Tanglewood and meeting a few other people in different places, and you know, came back with this uh, this exciting idea that you know we could we could probably do this if we if we, if we got together and and uh, made such a group. Um,
0: and and Black Earth is the first, you know, such group I, 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 in the I, United States. I, I guess
1: it is. I, I mean, I shouldn't say I guess. I mean, there were as far as a professional group just devoted to wanting to make this, this happen. There's a group in, in Europe, there were a number of groups in Europe, but there's a group which still exists called the Percussion of Strasbourg, um, heavily, as all European things, heavily government supported, good for them, wonderful. Uh, uh, but that's a larger group, that was six, six people, and they existed already in the mid-60s. And this was only this was you know in in um, the very early seventies, nineteen seventy two. So um, and it was it was
0: close to the time that Nexus was also forming, but they were doing improvisation and in the ragtime. It stuff was came exactly after that. it was
1: exactly at the same time, and the, the two groups had no knowledge of one another. Really and, interesting. And um, what is sort of funny is that <clears throat> I I guess I could make the. Um, self-deprecating joke that maybe maybe the idea of the Black Earth Group was an anachronism already at the moment it was being born, the idea to bring the highly refined art of European chamber music to percussion. (laughs) Um... You know, passionately devoted to this this idea, and meanwhile, there was another group um, who was very much um, ha- had had their finger on the pulse of world music. I mean, this was this was an, a very new thing that there weren't even a lot of music schools that had. Um, ethnomusicologists on the faculty. Mm-hmm. You, you didn't, people didn't have such easy access to the whole history of all of these cultures. I mean, we knew there was percussion in all of these cultures, but not that many of us had yet studied it. Um, It was also the time of uh, a ragtime revival. There were Hollywood films and certain things happening, but uh, it was just at that time. And and the idea of collecting instruments from all over the world and just filling the stage with a, a fabulously beautiful sculpture of hundreds and hundreds of beautiful instruments and just Im- improvising on, on these things. So they, they had a whole, a number of different trajectories, which in one sense one would have to say proved to be um, a thread that many more people followed. And this idea of, mm, you know, wanting, wanting to play, play, I'm not sure what, young composers as well as the LaSalle Quartet was playing Schoenberg. <laughs> it seems funny now but that we were devoted to that idea it was a couple of years later that we actually you know we had a concert in buffalo and so we went up and met these nexus guys in montreal and hmm. uh yeah it was all it was all very nice but, yeah yeah mm-hmm. but
0: like you said a different sort of trajectory I yeah mean, completely. very very different mm-hmm. but fascinating that that was happening all at the same i mean yeah. all at the same time uh-huh. let's maybe since we've talked a lot about the um percussion we've talked a little bit about the percussion group and now we have a bit of a backstory with the black earth group let's maybe talk about your own sort of creative work things that you have done your compositions or collaborations that you've done sort of outside uh the group and certainly in recent years you've been doing more of that Mm -hmm. uh and so just by way of example you know when when i was studying with you at cincinnati we um you asked me to help make a piece called "The Innocence," which was essentially at that point a performance art piece that combined percussion and electronics and some spoken texts with movement and theater, and um, and it was on the issue of wrongful imprisonment and exoneration through DNA evidence. And um, that piece has really been fruitful for us. I mean, then we sort of made a concert version without the dance and theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, piece and have expanded it over the years. And most recently, we we performed this at the uh, Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, where we got to meet an exoneree and, you know, uh, sort of play this piece in the shadow of the papers of Martin Luther King. It's a pretty amazing, uh, pretty Mm -hmm. amazing thing to get to to do and to have this piece that's really about uh, something that I think we both feel passionate about, or at least yeah. we want people to know that that yeah. it, that it is. And even after we did the first piece, first time in 2006, here we are in 2015, and it's still an issue, <laughs> so yeah. It, yeah. it's not gone away. But one of the things, you know, just that's by way of, of sort of segueing into what I want to ask you about, is that this thing that you sort of impressed on to me as a student was the importance of making... Uh, making work about issues that were important to you, uh, socially conscious art and and that you could do something that was you could make something that was about uh, mm-hmm. uh, an issue that was important um, to you. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your approach to that topic of sort of socially conscious music.
1: As a percussionist, I think all of all of us, have ideas that come up for all of these beautiful instruments and all of the the ways we have to play them and to combine them and and we can share that with composers we do we we hope to find composers to in fact as as Herbert Brun would always say it's it should be a, cons- a conspiracy which is defined as to breathe together and you you want to conspire with the composer and um, it's probably in one sense it should be easier for percussionists to do that um, because composers want our uh, uh, the interface with all of our knowledge but what happens is that we can't help but get ideas ourselves Um, and even though I have training and you know, had had mentors had had composition lessons did did such things I have ever since high school had some some interest in and I was making things the ideas would come and I mostly I wanted to do it for myself almost all of these pieces they've they've been for me and as you say that what 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 would come together is something about a certain instrument or technique or 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 things that I've gathered together in the studio, um, but that in itself was never enough. There would I, I would want there to be then you know some reason for for making something um, a good example. Some from just a few years ago, um, at the time of of the protests in. Madison, Wisconsin, when the governor of Wisconsin, Walker, was um, um, trying to take away the 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 rights of public employee unions. Um, and then the same thing came to Ohio. There was a bill in the Ohio um, Senate about to, to do the same thing. Mm, uh, the idea that, so the idea that Teachers couldn't, shouldn't be able to have some sort of association to you know, speak amongst themselves about protecting their or deciding, you know, what they wanted in benefits and and uh, salary and all of this. Well, th- th- of course, we all felt very strongly about this. Many of us went to the to Columbus to um, just be on the lawn to take part in these protests. Uh, there was all kinds of chanting and there were banjo players and people singing historical protest songs. And in one sense, I felt uh, badly that the kind of music that I do, that I'm passionate about, I understood had no place at a mass rally of this sort of thing. Um, And yet I didn't want, in that case, my life to be um, in in two parts, separated that my political views, my social social um, concerns, aren't really separate from me as an artistic being. It it all makes up everything we do, um, and and I love my students. You know, back back in Cincinnati, I'm thinking about the daily contact with next generations of people, uh, and what I wanted to do was make a piece then which somehow I could perform in my context so that it didn't really matter that it was not going to be uh, advancing the cause of union rights in the state of Ohio who was going to hear it but it was raising the issue in, in, in in the music school, just that the students know that uh, everything about your life—that it's important that you pay attention to what's going around on around you in the society. Anyway, I I I um I made a piece because I, I saw actually in the New York Times there was a stunning photograph of the. Um, Uh, protests at the in the Arab Spring this was at that same time there was a photograph of someone in on the square in um, uh, Cairo holding a big sign saying in solidarity with Madison Wisconsin it was a stunning notion that these people also knew that there were these huge protests Going on there, so i i, I made made a, a piece with a text and some fragments of Cage music, and and using a whole collection of Middle Eastern frame drums, uh, connecting all of these all of these things, and I performed the piece many times during those during those years, which just gave a little bit of. Um, well, it was called "Connecting Egypt to Madison, Wisconsin through the History of the American Labor Movement." It had a very long title. Um, I think these things actually came to me as I as I think back. Well, what what was it that set me on this particular path? You know, my father was a uh, factory worker when I was a kid, but he rose through the ranks of union politics and uh, um, shop. Shop stuff, and uh, you know, became a, a government official in in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Then in the county, was elected to the state government, and finally ended up in the last decade of his life as a s- senator in in um, in the capital of Wisconsin. Um, so i always so he was a public servant in an era when when it was very very positive and beautiful i had a very very i was so i was proud to of my connections to what he was doing and uh, the causes that he fought for so on the one hand i had that background and and then the sort of the coincidence of um of some of the strongest composers that i came in contact with were Herbert Brun at the University of Illinois, uh, the the man I cite as my maybe principal mentor in all of this, Um, uh, someone who had fled Europe during, you know, in in the late 30s. Um, So this was a man from a very philosophical point of view who was much connected to the whole history of these sorts of things. <clears throat> and Frederick Jevsky, we the Black Earth group met Frederick Jevsky very early. Our first record was um, uh, playing his big piece, Les mouton de Panurge. and then he had two other pieces on the other side of this record. And Frederick has remained a lifelong friend, um, but he's famous composer of, of pieces always on political issues. So I had such strong examples of people who I knew were, were brilliant and deeply gifted musicians uh, both as players and as thinkers, as composers who refused to separate uh, these aspects of their life. Um, I, I think that made a strong Impression, and in in the small way that we could, we could do it as as a group, or that I could do it. Most of the pieces that I've made mm, try to do something on, in that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Just as a uh, to kind of follow up on something you said there about uh, Herbert Brun, um, that's a composer that maybe a lot of people uh, have have not heard of. But, and you know, of course, I, I had not heard of him until I came to study with you. And then I, I heard a lot about him. <laughs> and, and I read a lot yeah. of his, uh, of the essays and uh, his writings and played some of his music and found it to be absolutely fascinating. And um, so, but maybe a lot of people wouldn't know that composer or know the music or the, the writings and things. So maybe uh, talk a little bit about Brun and, and maybe your your connection and how he figured so prominently in your influential for you.
1: He was a uh, composer, professor at the University of Illinois, and had arrived there in the mid-60s. He came to work on computers that he was part of that generation of what we refer to as sort of the Darmstadt generation of composers in Germany, people the post-Webern kind of people who were more and more interested in the mathematics of uh, compositional systems. Uh, He got to the point where he felt he needed a computer, so he's he's mostly known as a pioneer in computer music, Um, not only in, in sound synthesis, but he also found a way to make actually very beautiful graphic scores. So there's a, there's a large body of, of um, visual art from him, all computer-generated, but by very sophisticated programs that he wrote to get the computer to make these, um, these beautiful drawings. <coughs> and um, the Black Earth Group <coughs> began its career there in, in Urbana and he he was mm, he was fascinated by the idea of uh, four four guys with long hair and beards who wanted to make make a make a new music group and um, and fascinated and amused and uh, you know now now that I think back about it I, I think he s- sort of saw he saw it as a very positive thing and he he wanted to make himself. Available, you know, as a as a friend and and mentor, um, so we hung out with him a lot. Asked him to write some music for us, and he was he became a mm, a, fa- a grandfather figure to me that I stayed closely in touch with till the end of his life. Um, another thing that was so strong, such a strong impression um, from I got from him. He's of the generation of all of those famous guys, Boulez and Stockhausen and all those European composers, um, was well-known amongst them, well-respected by these people, but he, Herbert himself had such a, an aversion to what he saw as a, an ever-growing um, social um, uh the, the, the idea that people were compelled to make careers that you had to somehow be a celebrity to make a career and he was he found this so distasteful and um being devoted to his his music and his students the fact that he wanted to be in a university teaching next generations of of people encouraging young people um Made, made him so allergic to any of this kind of publicity kind of stuff and uh, self-promotion, all such things. His music wasn't published until one of his students themselves formed a publishing company and uh, one of the first things that Sylvia Smith wanted to do was publish Herbert's music, so that's where it became available relatively late in his career. So what was the what was the aversion to
0: to the idea of, of promoting one's work just just that he didn't approve of the sort of commercialism that he saw coming or was it that or what was it what was it exactly
1: well of course he believed deeply in his own in his own work and sure. he was convinced about its its merits and what he was doing and where he wanted it to be heard um, but I, I think, yeah, you're exactly right. That that the it had become um, a commercial, a commercial venture for so many people, and that one had to have some kind of celebrity status to make the next level of their career, which had nothing to do with the art and ideas that he was involved with. Mm. You know, historically he was um, part of a generation of, I would say, uh, you know, v- very intellectual left, far, far to the left uh, on the political spectrum and, and could speak very, very eloquently about all, the history of all of that stuff. So it all had to do with, um, in his mind also with social justice for, for, for everyone. I have uh,
0: thought about this a lot. This issue of uh, sort of self-promotion, and uh, there's there seems to be sort of a hunger with young musicians and composers. To it's a it's a hunger for I'm not sure what it is attention or uh, the, the over, like an urge to please a crowd or something. Uh, but I, I sort of, uh, w- I had to kind of articulate this for myself in a, a, a panel thing that I was involved with at, at the Percussive Arts Society a few years ago. And I wrote about the cult of celebrity was one of the things mm-hmm. that I wrote about. And uh, uh, I just kind of want to get your reaction to something that, that I actually uh, mm-hmm. articulated for myself and mm-hmm. maybe get your response to it. So what I said in this uh, thing was there's a, so this is, I listed sort of some problems that I have maybe uh, that I identified. One is number four, which I call the Cult of Celebrity. And I said, there's a troubling new breed of performer, one who has an overwhelming urge to please a crowd, but who are often empty inside and artistically lost. They chase a hunger for recognition over ability. I prefer personal relationships to fame and notoriety. I do not revere the words of music critics or journalists, nor covet their or the public's affection. By the way, I should say the title of this thing was A Manifesto. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's very uh, sort of dramatic. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I, I go on to say that the climate of commercialism and consumerism has produced the idea that pop culture status and fame are effective measurements of success and that the most desirable use of musical talent is for commercial employment some teachers promote this notion and the marketplace rewards it. And I go on and on uh, for another yeah. couple of paragraphs about that issue. But um, hearing you talk about all of this makes me think, well, maybe I, got, maybe I got all that from Herbert Bruin via you, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, mm-hmm. but I, but I see it and I see yeah. what I think I see maybe the current incarnation of what he was seeing mm-hmm. uh, back then. I've heard composers talk about it, too, you know, that people are too busy working on their their websites and their uh, these bios that start with, you know, mm-hmm. they've been called blah, blah, blah yes. by the New York Times. Right. Well, okay. Right. Well, yeah. So a music critic has said, you know, that you're uh, yeah. outstanding or whatever, the yeah. you know, these fancy mm-hmm. uh, sort of bios that come out. Um, I just don't put a lot of stock in, in what What a music critic would say or uh, the end of that paragraph uh, says that I sort of come to terms with it and I say a better measure of success is communication, which is something I learned from you. Mm -hmm. After all, music at its most elemental is communication and it can create an awareness of social, political, environmental or cultural issues, all things that we've just Mm -hmm. been been talking about. Trying trying to be relevant Rather than just serving your own ego.
1: Well, another thing that I always remember so clearly from from Herbert is his saying that he he would wish for himself and for those around him to to raise their voice in the name of something other than themselves. A succinct, succinct way of. Um, touching upon this very issue, and, and, and I think it's simply been a matter of the exponential um, expansion of media and communication tools that everybody is so aware of, of um, yeah, celebrity status in the society, whether it's sports heroes or, or people in, in the media. And these are the examples that are, that young people grow up with, you know, much more so even than I did uh, in the '50s and '60s. So, in this sense, it's um, it feels like it's a it's it's a pervasive example, and one would wish that it was not the example that people people would would see. It you you would want it to be about you know When I say this, you want it to be about the work. And not about yourself. That is, you take you take the work very, very seriously. And maybe take yourself not so seriously. Um, but yet, we can think of lots of examples of people who also already know all the right things to say. And after all, it's still just a way to promote promote their career. Um,
0: it's a fine line. I mean, it's a hard line for uh, for artists to walk. This idea that it's at, on some level you you do want to get your work out into the world, and you do want people. To, if, if you're of that mind, you know, you want other people to play your music. Specific, you know, if you're a composer, I assume you want people to to know and play your music. Um, and you know, one one way to do that is to to promote it in some way. But but there's a fine line between. Mm-hmm. Getting your work out into the world and it being not about the work, yeah, will you in a way
1: that's... I think we can we can often see when well, you know i I often have this example of um um artists or i th- I think of performing artists being I would wish it for myself, I would wish it to be uh, a, a bit like people in 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 spiritual contexts, meaning that communities of humans have always had a central person, a, a shaman, a priestess, a, a, you know, a monk, a priest, a, you know who is who is that person who is directly in touch and is spending their whole life and being focused on being in touch with with, whatever that community considers to be the elemental forces of their spiritual being and the community then gathers around this person if we want to speak in simplest western cultural terms okay on, on sunday mornings people went to church to to be in touch with this and and where that that officiant was the direct connection and it was through that officiant that the rest of the congregation made you know a special connection um and i think it's the same with shamans and priestesses and all of that historically in all kinds of societies um where these people the monks you know it's not about it's not about them and as i say to my students that it's not that they're not going to be nervous when they perform these rites and rituals of the society the connections to to the the god or what whatever the idea is similarly i'm 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 wishing for musicians and composers not to be thinking about um in that sense the focus is not on themselves as cultivating their performance and their outward face to the community but it's their it's our job even as um individual musicians in the practice room. What I want to do is take my relationship to my instruments, my music, that very private spiritual relationship that I cultivate by myself in my practice room. I'm taking that to the stage and I trust that when anybody else who comes to that and just sees me in that state of Quote, Communication, not with them. I'm not even necessarily trying to communicate, uh, sell something to any audience. I'm communicating with my marimba, with the sound that it's making, the vibrations it's making. I'm communicating through it, and these vibrations to the composer who, whose ideas are are being formed, uh, reformed with these sounds. Um, and I'm not nervous about it, and nor am I. Nor am I selling anything. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm just in that moment of that um, art form, and I think it's. It must be very similar to that priestess who is engaged in her ritual prayers and the community sees that and and feels it and i i trust that any audience watching us hearing us experiencing us do that actually gets a much stronger connection to something that they can't do themselves i need them to fix my computer and my car and do all the other things that we need various people with various talents in the society i i i'm going to trust that they need me to to make a certain kind of kind of art which is not about me but is is connects them along with me to something some bigger vibration
0: well uh lots to unpack and digest there al thank you so much for that it was uh, it's always great to hear you talk about these things you clearly have so much passion for this idea and i i hope people uh can pick up on that and and take something away from this. And so speaking of this idea of taking something away we're we should, we should wrap soon. And uh, so I always like to close these sessions by asking for advice or guidance to people who are along the creative path and be it uh, sort of any kind of creative advice that you'd like to give for a person who's trying to live and sustain A creative life, and you can take that any way you'd like.
1: I, I think that what keeps me connected to the history of classical music, erudite music in the Western world, um, all this music that I I I really do do love. I can't. I I wouldn't want to live without. Chopin and Mahler and these things, which is m- maybe even a little bit unusual for to hear from uh, a percussionist in the twenty-first century. Many of the people who are making experimental percussion groups and new music and uh, um, uh, are actually more connected to vernacular music or music of other world cultures Um, and my roots have very much been in Bach and Beethoven and all of this sort of stuff. Um, But what one comes to realize is that mm, these people mm, made something in their time and place. They responded very specifically to their time and their place, and it's why one still feels the, the the deep quality in this kind of work. And no matter how much I might love any of that stuff, I can't I can't recreate. Uh, I, I I can't I can't make a piece that sounds like Chopin and play it on the marimba. That doesn't make any sense for my time and place and the only way to uh, have a chance to be mm, admitted to that club and i don't mean the club of being famous as these people now are famous names but i mean i'm 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 humbled by by being a member of a of a, a historical community Chopin was, you know, he was just a guy with all kinds of problems and um, he played the piano. He played concerts and he taught piano lessons Uh, and he wrote down his ideas and uh, made some money from passing out some of his music, Um, etc. Hundreds hundreds and hundreds of such, you know, deeply beautiful human spirits who still speak to us over the ages. feeling humbled to, to want to be part of that kind of ongoing community, um, the only way I, I I dare to to participate in that is to do in my time and place what they did in theirs, which is not going to be the same response. That, it's not going to sound like how they did it. It's not going to be responding to the same societal issues, but... but we know that they did they can't you you can't make an art in isolation from your surroundings no matter what artists claim to be doing we are all of our time and place um, and i sort of trust in that 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 there is reason to pay attention it's a it's also a full engagement as you and i have all often talked about that it you know it, it it matters um, if you're going to be involved as an artist. If if you if you make the really um, mm, crazy commitment that you think you're going to try to pay the rent and health insurance, but you, you're you're passionately devoted to some art form. Um, then it has to be a passionate devotion which means you know it matters that that what you eat how you eat it matters what you read it matters how you pay attention to your sick cat or going for a walk with your dog or it matters um, all the aspects of your life become part of that um, artistic creative life it mm, does i i don't mean it to sound in any way pretentious or in any way even oddly mystical but I, but i i think in 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 america in the 21st century there's there's no possible excuse to say oh yeah i'm devoted to my role as a musician as a painter as a poet or something without actually the devotion encompassing your whole being which means uh, I, I care about the kind of exercise I do to keep my body in the right shape with the right food coming in in order to play percussion the way I envision playing it. So. Well, Al,
0: thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it, you taking the time to sit down and
1: chat. It's, um, yeah, it's very special to actually have the conversation with... Um, someone that I've known over the years, and who, um, yeah, you know, every teacher comes to the cliche. Well, I, I I learn more from my students than than I teach them. <laughs> but uh, there are some students who are an incredible inspiration to the teacher, and uh, who, if nothing else, keep me practicing. <laughs> So as long as you keep playing, I think I have to keep practicing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for saying so. Certainly I wouldn't uh, be doing what I'm doing without your uh, guidance and uh, and advice and uh, mentorship over the years. So yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter at that John Lane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.